Hey everybody, welcome back to our second podcast. We are calling this the what? The culture and arts events. <laughs> That's what we're calling it. Just a really thing that happens organically. We're just gonna flow with it. Thank you for coming back to therapy with do or die. And I have two special ladies in here. We just kind of already started talking about how important art is in our community and the need to explore and fund and kind of rejuvenate the art scene and the culture of art and curating and knowledge and the goodness of being black. Hello? Hello? All right, so you were talking about how we have here in Houston. What is it? The So we have a lot of black art spaces. Most of them aren't new, but they're new to people. So I guess the easy way to break them down is by actual museums. So we have two museum spaces that are black. We have Houston Museum of African American Culture. That's in the museum district, independently owned and operated. Then we have the University Museum, which is on the campus of Texas Southern. The University Museum is really like good. now. Where where is it on campus? It's hard to explain. Okay. <laughs> um, is it closer to the law school or is it actually like in their main campus? Here? Yeah, it's their main campus. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of hidden and it's open. I think seven days a week. I think it's even open on Sundays. Okay. The thing that why I say it's brilliant is because literally. The director, uh, Dr. Alvia Wardlaw, is like the black curator, <laughs> one of the black curators of America. She's like renowned female. Yes, oh, first black PhD in art history from University of Texas. Yes, women. Yeah, like help the Manils when they were doing some in Deluxe Theater. One of her projects, I think, as a graduate student, was to create a black art space inside the old Deluxe Theater with the Manil collection. Uh, lifelong Achievement Award winner from the Association of African American Museums and literally one of the most humble people I've ever met and she loves people, black people who love art and she's there as like a resource so to see her work like you know kind of like a living legend in museum studies just be able to do brilliant work I mean TSU got a gem when they snatched it up you know, she was at the MFA uh, and she was curating the African-American collections they had. In fact, it was interesting because it's like, you know, like how life goes full circle. When I was a kid, my mom took me to the, uh, the like, the Geechee quilt exhibit that they had. And it was the first of its kind. That's what she curated. And that's what she became known for uh, in this modern time, like in the 90s, 2000s. And so to actually meet the person who created that, and that kind of is how I got into art. As a kid, it was like, wow, this is really cool. And to uh, be able to kind of, you know, chat with her about how to get in this game, how to stay in the game, it's awesome. And like I said, she wants to help people who want to get access to that. And, you know, people can be real elitist in the art game, and she's the opposite of that. So that's dope. And then you have, like, uh, the archives. So that's the Gregory School. That's run by the Houston Public Library, so it's not independent, but it's still awesome. Uh, and then you have communal so like right by the public schools like be on the boards or no 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 so the library system runs it so it's considered part of HPL meaning that that's like where a lot of their funding services come from that's who runs their marketing uh, so it's kind of a support function because this is a library in the sense that you can walk in and check something out and go 
But how much of a voice do we have in that? Well, the staff is black. Black, okay. Yeah, like Danielle is the curator. Erica, I think, is the like program manager. They are black and they've been there some time. And you know, Danielle's an HBCU grad, so like, yeah, we're we're good on that end. And also, the director of the uh, Houston Public Library system in Houston is also a black woman. Black. You know? So I think that we can feel safe. I mean, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That is really really cool. And so. Um, what, what else did I think about? You were talking about the Buffalo Oh, yeah, yeah. And we yeah, talked about the community um, arts collective. The differences with having art and cultural artifacts and just art are the mixture of both. We were talking about that as well. So I think the value that exists is in like I don't know if anybody understands the value of art. The reason I say that is because it doesn't have to necessarily be a black art thing. Mm. I talk to white artists who can't sell their work either because it's very hard to say. I'm selling you like you can walk in and say I really like this piece and ask somebody well, how much it is and if it's four thousand dollars they can't wrap their head around spending four thousand dollars on it regardless of how much they like it. And for black artists that's even harder because until I would say the last few years. Black artists haven't been, been in the mainstream, so right. how hard is it for black people to sell to black folk when you consider also like the fact that we are not at the same level of having disposable income to spend $4,000 right. on. So a lot of the major artists are getting purchased by very few black art collectors and then a lot of white collectors and people like Jack Shamey Gallery in New York that's run by a white guy, but most of the artists are black. That he represents. I'm um, waiting to see Hank Williams' art in a collection somewhere here as well. I've been, that's I think I asked right. Hank Williams. <coughs> Isn't there a Williams? Who is Hank Williams? He does the art where he has the, like the football player okay. Okay. I in the cotton field. Okay, because there's, <coughs> there's another black Hank Williams who's an architect, right? He helped to design a lot of Houston. Y'all know him? No, I'm trying to think. Did he do the George R. Brown? Because there is a black architect, but I just doesn't remember his name. I think so. he's actually from Cali, but I think he has there is Houston at home. So, so is it exposure or like education? Like, what do you think is causing, I guess, like our our inability to market? Like it's a lot of things, and it's like my tagline now when I talk about art in general, especially <laughs> black art, is access without intimidation. The people, the black people who do have access to black art, they like being on this pedestal of I know how art works without passing that on. Mm. I've had mentors who weren't, I, for lack of better words, uppity, and they taught me how to, one, how to source out art, how to purchase, that you could put art on a payment plan. These are things I didn't know because nobody ever taught me because they didn't think I was part of their you know, art crowd. And we have it at the least. Yeah, so when you have that mentality, then the normal, the average person can't get art. But then, so you can't argue that people aren't interested in art when you're not trying to provide them access without intimidating. I think the same thing with it happens with visual artists as it happens with other artists, mm -hmm. with musical artists and um, um, written art. You know, like, ouch. I hurt myself. I know. I think the marketing aspect of it. And that's just like, a lot of the times artists are not in the business of art. 
You know what I mean? That's the problem number two. <clears throat> like you have people who are brilliant artists. They don't know how to run a business. They don't know how to market themselves because what they love doing is not necessarily going to put money in their pocket unless they know how to market. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't, can't afford... Exactly. And if you can't afford a marketing team, then you just create really brilliant pieces and it's like shouting into the wind. Nobody sees it, hears it, or any of that. And people take advantage of those folks too. I've seen that happen in real time. You got people from East Texas, West Texas making, you know, beautiful pieces of art. They have, some of them don't have an education, some of them are older, and they've been making art for 40 years, and then somebody, whether they are skin folk or not, will find them and then take advantage of them. Right. And say, oh, I can manage you, but then they're taking more of the cut. Because keep in mind, galleries are taking twenty percent, thirty percent. You know, the management might take five to ten percent. It's like how much ends up being the artist once you take out the cost of their supplies. So, how would you consider like a a local artist to even get to a feasible financial marketing campaign? Instagram, the best. Oh, social friend, media. The best friend of any artist or anybody who does a creative service in general is social media mm-hmm. because now you, the advertising field has been leveled a little bit before you had to know somebody you had to inv- uh, have a gallery want to invest in you you had to know who where the galleries are there are tons of galleries in houston but most people regardless of race do not know where they are because they're not in that scene it's kind of like you got to bleed the block yeah bleed and- the social media block with your content. With your content, for take advantage mm-hmm. of those hashtags, those black art, hashtag black art, uh, artist connected hashtag. Find those things, that those spaces where people are looking for art. I think on the other end, people who are buying art, understand that you don't buy art with the hopes that it's going to double in value. Right. So you really need to like what you buy. Right. Like, most likely, most of us are not in the space to buy a Kahende Wiley Piece because it's gonna be 50 or 60k. Meaning, but we know it's a value. But are we in that space? No. Meaning, you need to find something you like. Like somebody 30 years ago probably bought a Kahende Wiley for maybe 400 dollars and it's worth 10, 15 thousand dollars. And they didn't realize. They, didn't realize, they just thought he had great work. And that's how you have to approach art from a buyer's perspective. But then you know, a lot of the time, if you if it's not something tangible or you can't show off or you can't put on if it don't have a bunch of G's and LVs on it people will not give it that kind of value. So when you look at it and you talk about buying art, I think, especially our people, I think it's something that we're growing more into recognizing and accepting as opposed to this is what we've been doing and this is what we've been taught because culturally we have not been taught to respect the value of art either. No, never put like a piece in a dining room and sell no, everybody had that picture of Jesus. Yeah. And Martin Luther King on the on the on the Ebony magazine cover. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And at best you got, you know, a photo of like black people or silhouettes walking to church. Right. Like that's what it's gonna be. And I said that isn't art, but you get what I'm saying? But it's been a whole scope. We've been doing this. And then when they wanna talk about I mean, shout out to hip hop, because a lot of hip hop artists and mainly older hip hop artists are talking about what art pieces they own, which ones, which collections they have. Like I just saw Swiss Beat oh, yeah, and Alicia Keys have been um, presenting and buying and curating even some, I don't know the artist's name or what collection they have, but that's amazing. And so 
But then you got those other ones that want to talk about, oh, if you don't know art, this person only talking about, you know, how much he paid for this art. Yeah. Open up your mind to get some culture and learn about, this ain't a bad thing. That's what you want? Yes. That's what I was going to get at. But, um, but that's the, the issue with me also is that when we have the knowledge, right? So Jay-Z talks a lot about Basquiat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what led Basquiat last year to become the highest selling American artist, mm-hmm. just in general. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. I want people to go beyond Basquiat mm-hmm. and start thinking, okay, who else can I get at now? Because now Basquiat pieces are not available to anybody average. I don't care how rich you are. Even billionaires <laughs> can't get that. You ain't buying that. no Basquiat just off the street. You ain't buying that off the street. And so now it's like, okay. And you can't so, sell enough dope and buy no Basquiat. You can't. Billionaires <laughs> can't get no Basquiat. So you think you're going to get one? No. Not likely. But, you know, also Swiss Beats has done a really good thing that's kind of access without intimidation, too. And I was reading about it. He got into art. For, you know, he was in um, Harvard Business School. Come on, Swiss Beats. And they have to do a project to, like, complete the certification project process. And he went to some art gallery, and they were saying that they were taking 40%. And he's an artist, so he's like, I don't want forty percent of my money taken for something I created. Right. So he creates this basically this uh, art show to travels where all the money goes back into the artist's pocket. And so the way that money happens and they put it on is that he gets big companies to sponsor it. So it's no money out of his own pocket. I mean, he's genius. Big company sponsor. They're tied to Swiss Beats. They're tied to the community and art. And artists get all their money back. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, and that's like that's what I'm, that's also part of it, right? You gotta have somebody who's not trying to nickel and dime you because they know more about the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you also spoke on you so you, you talked about how Jay Z he put his he put his mouth on it and it exploded. Oh yeah, but I think like sometimes mainstream is very intimidated by black people talking about anything other than what they want us to talk about True. because they knew that it would become like a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what will happen if, if those who already have the platform. I think, you know, I don't know because then you have the downside to it. So, um, uh, I think his name is Karen Jean Marshall. Great painter. Then he bought his painting for $20 million, which was awesome, right? Because black people literally do not get paid. I'm going to paint something because I need $20 million today. Oh, he's also been doing it for 45 years. You you get what I'm saying? Like a lot of black artists and New York Times just dropped this. One guy is like 85 and has never been recognized, and now people are buying his art, and he doesn't know how. Like he's lived almost penniless his whole life. He doesn't even know how to yeah. live out the money that he gets. Exactly. Yeah. And the reality is that he won't live that out because a lot of black artists are just finding fame. With like I said, the last five years, people are actually investing in black art. I it's two things. You have the ditties of the world who buy the 20 million dollar one piece, and you're like, great. But you know, with that $20 million, he could have supported the Studio Museum of Harlem. They were selling pieces. And the whole collection that they were selling was worth $32 million. He could have bought all that stuff from them, and they would have been able to double the size of their building. I think they're like, damn if you do, damn if you don't either. Because, like, you want artists to support individual artists. You want people to support individual artists. You want them to support and buy into our communities with education and... Uh, opportunity, but then it's like if you don't do it this way, 
then you screw. It's a double edged sword. You're right. right. So I feel weird because it's like, dang, he lifted the level of Kara Jean Marshall by 20 million. Like that's unheard of for one piece for a black artist. It's not Basquiat. But on the flip side, 20 million dollars could have been 75 percent of a brand new building for a whole museum dedicated to black culture. So I'm not saying that Denny's not writing another $20 million check, but start thinking about, yeah, like this like is the, the, the greater good. I think that, and that was the critique there, like, it is a double-edged sword. You did what we need to do, which is elevate more black artists, but you could have done it on a larger scale with the same amount of money. Okay, so talk about the importance, how you were saying how it's important to have a knowledgeable curator in our museums that are not always available. Yes. So like the piece that had gotten messed up, how about that and what museum that was? So keep in mind that there are a lot of, one, they're not a lot of black curators. Uh, uh, they're not, in the context of things, there are a lot of black artists because I believe black people are artists by nature. Yeah, but if you're talking about like, there are only 4% of black women in museums. Um, when we go into arts majors, whether it's art history or they only have a few masters of art studies, like John Hopkins has one, I forgot who else has one. In terms of visual art? In terms of visual art, like museum studies and art history curation, these programs are few and far in between and they're expensive. And museums don't pay. That's the, that's the thing, they don't pay for anybody. It's an elitist space that you essentially have to be, mom and daddy have to take care of you. There are a lot of people who have PhDs where the positions only pay 40K a year. Black people can't afford to have no leisurely job like that because they got to take care of people. They got to take care of themselves. Uh, I met a lot of people when I was working full time in the museum space um, that were, you know, white. And they were telling me, and they were 40 or 50, that they wouldn't be able to do this if their parents had not taken care of them until they were 35. I don't have that luxury. And a lot of that is that we're just understanding the concept of generational wealth. Yes. And they don't. A lot of times, you don't consider that art is a part of that wealth, right? Yeah. And people are saying, "Well, why are we seeing more black people in that space? Because it's not created for us to thrive it's in. Not. They do not pay well it to anybody. And if you don't have a support, a financial support system, the likelihood of you spending seventy thousand dollars on a PhD—that's the other elitist part, right? A lot of these places will not hire you if you don't have a PhD in something. That doesn't mean you're not talented, especially when it comes to curation of art. From the streets, yeah, or just a visual eye, natural talent right, for right. seeing art. And so, when you go to places and they're not able to take care of art, art is ruined. And you can't bring back, especially those with historical context. You can only restore so much. Right. And keep in mind, in black spaces, the funding is low. They are some, there are some cities like Dallas, I think San Francisco is one where the city and, and LA is one too, or the state will give you funds. Houston uh, Houston museums do not have that. So for example, HMAC is not a, a place where the city has designated money to them. None of it is grant funded? None of it is grant funded through the city or state and that is unlike other major cities. But is that our fault though? Are we not, are we not like? Yes and no. Um, okay, so when you think about the programs that, it's another chicken and egg situation again. Grant, when you write grants, they wanna know, you have to have something there, and they wanna know what they're funding. Very rarely will all grants fund new projects. So you can't go, I have a great idea, give me $3 million. You need to show that you put, not just even on paper, that you tried to execute this somehow. 
And so that's hard to get off the ground without like, a black major fund. Black people, to me, don't take advantage of grants the way that we should. Oh, you're right. Because I, I, I actually, and, and this is my fault, because I could possibly, probably put together a well-written grant and kind of present a proposal. But like even at churches, like when we get grants, we screw it up. Yeah, and that's another thing. We get the grant money, <laughs> and, and then in the next year, when we go back and ask for more, and they ask, what have you done with we, it? We ain't got nothing to show for it. You just, you upped everybody's salary. Okay, how does that benefit the community in the sense of that it benefits their homes and that your staff's homes but that money was for you to build our programs with and you went and gave everybody a $5,000 raise you have to have balance there maybe give a $1,000 raise and then use the rest of the money towards building a new program or fixing your building something that shows that you put an effort behind that money but we also need to start investing up because if I, if I come in and say okay I'll write this rent for you I'm going to charge you $50 an hour they're going to be like oh no we're not going to get this but like, it's money involved in it, and like sometimes Girl, we don't need to put talk about that. But that's not that's a us I have problem. a degree in writing, and if I tell you I don't write, it's a shame. I don't write for money. Yeah. Let's say that. Yeah. I do hair for money, <laughs> yeah. and I make podcasts for free. <laughs> I mean, that's also that's a a nonprofit thing because I've even worked with. Nonprofits that are major in Houston have great budgets and they don't pay grant writers because they're like, How can we pay you for something we're not guaranteed to get? Okay, because grant writing ain't easy and grand it's, it's very easy. tedious. And a good grant writer is worth their weight three times over and go because they're gonna bring in millions of dollars right. for you. Exactly. Like when I worked, I worked as a budget analyst person for a fire department in my hometown and we had grants where the lake had set it up so well that we had renewable grants and we didn't have to do anything for it. It just automatically mm-hmm. came. It's about $100,000, $250,000 grants that every two years you knew you were going to get regardless of what you did. Yeah. And that's because a great grant writer somewhere was like, hey, what's Because a great grant writer is also a great prospect and a great relationship builder. So if museums took advantage of those opportunities. Small museums. Large museums mm-hmm. have whole grant departments. Right, right, right. And that money comes in and they have a great fundraising department so people are donating and everything else. So if museums, like I said, like the small museums, took advantage and hired a grant writer. That's to me should be their first investment. I agree. First investment. A curator and a grant writer. Right. Hey, girl. How are y'all? Hey. Hi. Hey. Hey. you doing? You're going to talk. We're doing a podcast. You're going to talk. You have to come on in and get a, get a part of this conversation. I don't know if I can stay long. <laughs> what you got in your hand? You been eating and sharing it with your hand? <laughs> no, I've been eating. Oh. Because probably that leftover something that is so what about you were talking about the uh, the museum in California mm-hmm. the um, African American Museum in California why, why do you think that it has been so successful in maintaining its ability to incorporate art and cultural exhibits I don't think it was until three or four years ago mm-hmm. so so how, how old did it how long have they been in? I think the camp's been around since late 70s or early 80s okay. in that space and the state of California funds most of their work. So I think a few things happen. They recognize, one, we can admit that in the last five or six years, black culture has completely shifted towards us being more like aware of our culture and us being more interested in our own culture. I think they recognize that. They realized they were in LA and they had an opportunity there. Um, and then they start bringing in people. Uh, a friend of mine, Tyree, is the history curator. He's, very, he's a millennial, very focused on social media. So he took their lead when he said, hey, we need to put a lot more investment and time in social media. And we need to create experiences. So he has something called First Fridays, 
So every first Friday of the month, they have a kickback. I think oh. they call it like link up mm-hmm. and, and at the museum. They barbecue, they have all black owned businesses and markets. Um, they start pitching. I want to go. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and they brought in someone, Naima, I think, had a, a PhD and she was working in New York. Very well known black curator. They brought her in to be the deputy director and she flipped that place. Like, hey, let's start talking about black women in film because black women had a major role in silent filmmaking and producing mm-hmm. in the 20s. So they mm-hmm. did a small exhibition on that. Let's have something more relevant to California. So they do like art pieces that are major artists on one side of the museum. And then on the other side, they do local stuff. And the can is in LA, right? Can is in LA. And it's part of their like museum park. And so that's mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. They were part of they're part of an area that's kind of like the AUC in Atlanta. It's like five museums that share one piece of land. Mm-hmm. And but still people aren't going to the camp. They were going to the science museum, going to other places. Mm-hmm. So they changed the colors of their building outside to be bright. Mm-hmm. So it was black and white, and they added like a beautiful orange and a gold. And they created, once again, an experience because people were taking photos outside of it. And when you take photos and Instagram pictures, you go, okay, well, let me go okay, see what this is. I want to go take pictures. Little small changes, all part of marketing, really, that changed how they did things. And then they started realizing, okay, well, Rodney King was a big part of L.A. culture. Let's do an exhibition on that. And that's one thing you got to know. L.A. culture is going to support L.A. culture. And Tyrese from L.A., they took, he was working in New York, was not feeling it. They called him back home, essentially, and they gave him a free opportunity. When you kill black people who already have a passion for something, say, hey, we got this budget, he made something out of nothing. And then their budget kept doubling because then you start having big funders come in. And then, you know, um, they had a wearable art gala. Tina knows had it the first year somewhere. And Tyree had built his own social media follower, and he started pitching to her people for them to have the second one there. And they had it at the can the second year. And so when you start, then you start having Beyonce come up in your spot, everything elevates, and it becomes a different thing. So that's, I think, the the smartness of how they flip that. Uh, Naima is leaving to go work, I think, at the Tate Museum, so they're looking for a new person. Where is that? Uh, the Tate that is in New York. So okay, I think she's going back. It it's right. But like I said, she's just a well-known curator in general. She just happens to be a... Oh, and that's another thing too. We talked about like how she's going to like a, I guess a predominantly white type mm-hmm. institution. So I think people's experiences in white spaces can oftentimes help us in black spaces, especially spaces where we don't have a lot of experience. But the fact that she's leaving a black museum going to a white museum, she don't get some slack for it. You know? I so. mean she gets slack for it, but I think she also like they recognize the profiles. Like the MoMA is the MoMA, right? Right. We don't necessarily have a black equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. I would say the National Museum in D.C. is as close as you're going to get to being on that level where Mm. even white folk are going, oh, my God, you work where? You know, not to say we need to move in the gaze of them, but you get what I'm saying? Like, if you're in the art field, there are certain museums that are going to put you on the pedestal that nobody else is going to do. And she took a chance with the camp. She did her work, and I guess she felt that it was in a place where she could leave and it was still going. Um... Also, it comes down to pay. Like, the camel can have six figures because they put out how much they're willing to pay her replacement, but six figures in L.A. don't go that far. Versus high six figures in New York, which might not go that far either, but five, $500,000 always go further than that. As opposed to in Houston, yeah. six figures in Houston is a win. It's a win. Mm-hmm. But people, I mean, not to say they're not paying six figures in Houston, uh, 
Hold on. But they're not paying it in cultural spaces here. So you're talking about like MFA with that text message and getting your hair done and talking. You better multitask. <laughs> Gary Tenterose, the director of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, which is I think the eighth largest museum in the country, art mm-hmm. museum, he makes close to a million dollars a year. They're not gonna, I mean, he's higher paid. You know, Houston has 19 museums in the museum district. Nobody else in the museum district is getting paid that much. I mean, the Health Museum guy might make 200K. Tammy at the Children's Museum might make 250 because everybody loves the Children's Museum. But the reality is any woman, white, black, Latina, whatever, is not going to ever get paid as much, unfortunately, as a white man in a museum space. Because mm-hmm. it's their space. Well, they, yeah. they, they create the space. And then, yeah. they, you know, it's also about fundraising. Yeah. So yeah. they think that who can who can bring in this money? But you're talking about, you're talking about a white curator part of the country club that golfs with judges. There you, you go. If you walk into a space, that's $100,000. It's like, right. no questions asked. We ain't got to beg nobody. And are they brilliant? Probably not. But they no, have the connections. That goes back to that general generational wealth that we were talking about. Like, we haven't created, I guess, areas where we dominated and then left a legacy where somebody could reap the benefits yeah. of our seat. And yeah. even in spaces where we're known, it's more like doing social justice work, so the money's not necessarily there. Like that movie, The Intruder, that's coming out with a uh, Maiden Good. I just, they said it was an independent. Michael Fine. Yes. Fine. Is that his middle name? <laughs> yes, uh, black man. It was, you know, that was black funded. He was on the radio saying that. And I was oh, like, okay. Man. So the person who funded it was Robert Smith. And I'm like, I keep hearing his name. This man moves in silence. He's a black billionaire. He lives in Austin. Austin? I just want to say he's in Texas. Come on, black billionaire. Yeah, so he he donated a billion, I mean, not a billion, uh, I think $100 million to the AUC last year. He fully funded this movie that's coming out there, Intruder. So I'm like, I'm interested in wanting to know what his interests are. Because it seems like he's all over the place, but they're all in black spaces, but different kinds of black art, black education, black this. What makes him give his money? But, you know, outside of him and actual, like, celebrities you don't know where these other billionaires are at or you got the Dr. Dre's who are giving their money to USC you know they're not going to go drop their money at a Howard or Xavier or something like that because that doesn't give them the same level of recognition as having a building on the USC campus but then he did that too with Jimmy Iovine this is true so it's like again that thing you damned if you do either way you know what I mean but I mean Jimmy Iovine has made most of his money off black artists the least you can do is do something in black school uh-huh. <laughs> give something yeah give something back and so but that's the problem with HBCUs when they always want to make them state institutions anyway because well I mean they're state institutions anyway but they always want to do something different with them is because the lack of alumni funding. This is very true. And I was talking to someone whose husband is a professor there, and you know they just had the Maroon and Gray at TSU, the, um, mm-hmm. their major gala, and she made a comment. And this is why it's kind of important to be the black person in white spaces, but it's also uncomfortable at times. So her and her husband, like I say, her husband is a, uh, she works for a bank. I was about to say the bank. But she works for a bank as a CFO. Her husband's uh, associate professor, I think the history department, one of those departments. And they were there, and she said, well, we were the only people who gave 
you know, more than $3,000 because they had like a little ticker and people were just giving $50 here, $50 there. And she said, and I thought, oh, well, this is not a good fundraiser and I felt embarrassed for them. And I'm like, you can't do that without the context of knowing that black people don't have, if they afforded the ticket and the tickets were $250, you think they about to write a $5,000 check on top of that? We don't have that kind of wealth. She was telling me that her and her husband have a budget for fundraising. That's something that's unheard of to me. Mm. Like, oh, well, we know that each year we're giving at least $20,000. Right. That's not something that you can expect out of a, co- uh, a household of color, black, Latina, anything. Because if I got $20,000 extra dollars going for a student loan's house or something like somebody that. Somebody did. We paying somebody bills. We, we paying somebody. somebody's bills. So to say that, oh, well, I was embarrassed for them is not something I really, I don't think it was her place to say. But beyond it not being her place to say, it helped me understand the perceptions of people thinking that, oh, well, black people are just not good fundraisers. Black people are just, you know, they don't have an interest in education or the arts. That's not the case. So we have to come up with creative ways. And if I knew the answer, I'd be a billionaire on how to get these black museums the funding, and not just museums, cultural spaces, the funding they need. Because when our culture, like if these places close down, that's like one more like storyteller gone, right? Like in the sense of they tell right. our story. So anytime these right. places fail, close down. It's the absence of the griot. Exactly. So I wonder if diversified programming would help us. So it's cool that we, you know, take black artists and do a black show, but maybe on Friday nights we need to do a happy hour and maybe charge a cover of ten dollars and you know that's a, another way to do it. That's another income. market thing. And we did something when I was at H Mac called Eat Drink Art. And it was a, a $20 access thing. Because mm-hmm. that was my first thing. I said, hey, I, nobody's going to pay more than $20 to get in this joint. And people were offended. But it's the reality. You've Join. never been before. And you ain't never really heard nobody say it's a must-go place. You got to. It's kind of this drug addict mentality. Unfortunately, you got to give them a little taste yeah. before you can lift the price up to $100. And it went really well. But you know what makes me sad? So we went paid twenty dollars to go into a cultural space, but I spent what forty five dollars a week at brunch. Yeah, I was like, but the brunch was though. Say, baby, because I will eat. Yeah. And that's the thing. Even with the twenty dollars, people were saying, "Are oh, y'all gonna ever do a sale on this?" And I was just like, "Man, my people, my people." <laughs> right. Because it's they'll go stand in line at a certain place on Alameda, super long, just to get you know carnival food for fifty dollars. <laughs> create that same experience and how can we create that value I think education I agree I think education but, but at how the so? same time in, in terms of the lack for one that our children are not being taught about the importance of African American and African uh, visual art Okay. for one so if maybe if our children like I don't know where I got my exposure to Bigger. I don't know Bigger. I don't know where I got my exposure. Well, he's big in Houston because I knew about John Biggers before I even knew what I think I knew what art, high-end art was. Yeah. I think I just saw his piece and was like, oh, that's gorgeous. And somebody was like, you don't know John Biggers? You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, like oh, mm, I no, I guess I don't. Right. I don't know. But kids, are, so that's the thing. The education at every black museum I've been to is excellent. We went to uh, Reginald Lewis at Baltimore and half their visitors are kids. At HMAC, we had a new school bus there every every day. So I think the disconnect is, so a kid comes to these parents and says, we learned about Barclay Hendricks. 
and he had a painting that I really liked. Mom or dad goes, oh, that's sweet. And that's the end of the conversation. Mm. As opposed to, let's go see. Yeah, let's go see. Let's go on Google. Let me see what I can yeah, yeah, find yeah. about him, you know. Or, oh, well, we did, you know. And it's also application. Because I was like, you walking these kids through this. You tell them about it. They might be amazed, but they don't have an opportunity. So we start creating opportunities where they can go create something like that. Like with Alma Thomas, she did like little brush strokes. Beautiful. Looked like mosaic tile. So after we would do the walkthrough, we would have a little room where they could do their own. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Then you could do like a paint by numbers kind yes. of thing. Yes. And then it says, you know, this is my Alma Thomas recreation. Hopefully you get that to mama. You say you really had a great time. You, mom Google's Alma Thomas that she was a, a Southern black lady and saying, okay, maybe we need to look more into this. It does, it's a disconnect there. It happens once again in every household. I, I don't want to blame crazy black too, folks. Because most, most households, okay, so we do have art like whack. We, you know, we might have something like that in our household. Mm-hmm. I think too, believe it or not, it sounds crazy. Maybe the first instance, the that I got about art, Cosby Show. Remember when they bought that? Yeah. Um, what was it? Yes, yes, yes. I forgot which artist. I can't yeah. remember either. And it was in her family. Yeah. It was in uh, Claire's mm-hmm. family. Maybe I was like, oh, what's that? I remember they made a big deal about it. Too. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like a family thing. But then you talk about making a big deal about stuff. So two years ago, my little cousin graduated from high school. And of course, you know, I was calling around for graduation mm-hmm. gifts, and I remember her, me asking like, "Hey, you know, what do you want?" And she was like, "Well, I really like these new J's," and I was like, "Yeah, okay." So I give you this hundred dollars for these J's, or we can find something else for you to do. Maybe start a bank account. And everybody looked at me like I was crazy, and I was like, "No, oh, never mind, never mind. Let's let's find a joint, you know." So it's kind of like we gotta change our thought about money. And, and what priorities are, right? Because right. even to this day, my mom was like, I know you ain't spending no $100 on the art, but you, and $100 is cheap in the art world, right? When you can go to Hobby Lobby and get something cute. Like, yes, I can, but at my home, and she I always say, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> yeah. When I'm at home, I told my mom, like, I want my home to be a reflection of me, kind of a love letter to black culture. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of like protests. Like yeah, that. I have protest posters. Black Panther, like, newspaper covers that I went and bought. Things like that that I source out on purpose. Right. Because at home is the only place you're really going to be able to be yourself, right? So in my house, we have, like, um, we have little signs. White section only. Mm-hmm. And then for the in the, by the restrooms, we have black restroom, white restroom with the arrows and everything, the signs. Then I have a beautiful uh, piece by an artist in Atlanta. And he does those uh, play dates and the pay by numbers there. Um, and Mari Havard, and he did, I think it says, us uh, a picture of a little boy standing in front of like a, a water fountain. And it says white section only or something like that. I can't remember. He gonna have to forgive me for that. But I think that also starts an education. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in the home, when you're teaching your children about visual arts, what are they seeing in their house every day? And I mean, so when I went to college, I didn't have any decor. And so uh, when we walked in my house, when I was a kid, my mom, she went to Atlanta like in the 70s. And for the 10 year anniversary of the I Have a Dream uh, 
speech, they were printing them out at the King, like uh, at the church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and framing them. Yeah. And my mom thought that was the coolest thing, so she brought it back with us. So she we, she had it in the house, and that's where I walked past, like you said, mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, and I got my first apartment. I was like, I don't have the decor, but can I have that? And she was like, Okay, like don't play with this. And I and now to so my apartment as an adult, ten years, fifteen years later, it's the first thing you see. When you walk in the door, it's like, hey, we set in the mood for what kind of house this is. And like you said, if you don't see those conversation pieces, uh, even things that you don't think are important, like I tell my mom, the fact that she subscribed to Essence meant everything to me. Because after she was done reading it, she put it on the table. And I was like, okay, this is the cool hairstyles that people wear. I see fashion fair, advertisements, like seeing yourself. Like Jesus. Yeah, seeing yourself (laughs) and stuff is really important. And so that's why those Hobby Lobby pieces don't Say that again. Mm-hmm. Seeing yourself <laughs> and stuff is really important. Yeah. And I think that that might be the key. If we can see ourselves as curators, if we can see ourselves, you know, I'm a girl, but I'm going to be this type of artist. Yep. If we can see ourselves as that and not just a rapper or a basketball player. Which are really great things to aspire to. True. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Bye, girl. Bye. I think that it's, I don't know, it's just, it's always difficult because I know, it's like when people say, I'm so interested in doing this. I have, I come from an amazing family that's like, hey, my mom didn't believe this, but I have a lot of people who believe your passions will make room for you. And that was a big life changer. Like my fiance did not grow up in that environment. You got to get a science degree or the girls got to become nurses or teachers. It was no, your passion will make room. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's hard because I believe strongly like, okay, well, if it's for you, it's for you. And if you're passionate, it'll get done. But I also know the realities of that is that a lot of people, the most talented artists is in Sunnyside somewhere who never broke. You know what I'm saying? Like that, it's hard to tell black people that knowing that it's not that easy. I think about all the artists that that are like, you would think it's crazy. How black people become, so, not even black people, but just how people explore their gifts, mm-hmm. their natural gifts, when they're in isolated situations like prison. Yep. They have the best artists. Of artists. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think our parents do have to also adjust to the fact that culture has slightly shifted, and there is a way for you to make money off of stuff that in their day would have been like, okay, so when you get a real job. Yeah. Yeah. So like, cause I was watching one of the housewives reunions and. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. What's the model? The model. Oh, then that is Atlanta. Is um, is it the older one, Cynthia or Eva? Eva. Okay. Eva was saying how she tweets, and her tweets equals twenty thousand dollars. Like, I that's, like that's a tweet. That's, yeah. that's the reality of it. You know, you can do Instagram posts, mm-hmm. a tweet, you show up at a club, and, and, and walkthroughs of fifty k, hundred k. So it is a different market. I mean, you do have to know what you're doing when you get in those spaces, because a lot of people, you know, have either false some graces. Yeah. Because they don't. And I'm not saying censor the content, but I do think you have to be very strategic about your content. Oh yeah, and you can't you can't take every ad either because then that one might hurt your brand. Right. But then it's access. I always back down to that. We all probably could thrive if one person saw a post and then shared it and it went viral, right? Right. So, but that's just so by chance, and I feel like black people, regardless of what generation we're in, we can't afford to do things by chance. I can't get $80,000 in student loan debt at the hopes that someone will see me curate a show in Houston, Texas when it's not even a major art market. You get what I'm saying? So, 
it's hard to push people in that direction. It's not just art, but I mean, that's my space of what I've been in the last few years. But I just think why I am passionate about art is because who, who's going to tell our story? Who is going to tell our story? It's a history book. Yeah, they, do they don't do it. And so it's the responsibility of us to be keepers of our own culture, right? But then the danger of that too, well, not the danger, but just to be conscious of it, like how now they just ban Farrakhan. For what? For telling the truth? Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And then also knowing that I always tell people this from a marketing standpoint, you can't trust one platform. You don't own that platform. So they can pull that whenever they feel like it and then there goes your base. So, but where are Zimmermans? Well, Zuckerbergs. Who did that? Zuckerbergs. Where are Zuckerbergs? And he said it was anti-Semitic comments. And and, and Farrakhan has said that, but he, trust me, he ain't now, the other guy has told people to hang Muslims and all that. You talking about the, the, the Alex Jones guy? guy? Yeah. He is the worst. In the champion. He's the worst. But, I don't know. It's it's weird. Because um, freedom of speech doesn't mean that you're without consequence. Right. And it's the consequence. This is why you have to own your own platform. I mean, Farrakhan still has a website and things like that. And they, they won't be able to. I think they think that it's a way to silence him. We have the them. spaces to create those space, uh, those places, but we don't support them. So I'm not cutting. I'm not cutting. No. Okay. Um, we don't support them, and so it's like, what does support look like? Because I met with Michelle Barnes to see how I could volunteer, and she needed some help with grant stuff. So that's why I plan on helping her. In. But then also, it's the same argument on like, why do you, do the younger people? My younger people, she needs 50 and more. Why do they do they not appreciate art? And if so, why not? I'm a younger people. <laughs> not often I get to be a younger people. Well, I think I appreciate it, but like I guess for me coming from Georgia, 
like in attempting to I guess make sure I get in those black spaces just for mm. it's kind of the camaraderie and then like the education piece you don't you don't see a lot of it on social media like it took me a year to even discover that HVAC was there when I found it of course it's the first place I went but it was like had I not been looking for it I would have never found it well HMAC, since I left, has not had a dedicated marketing person, so I know they had something to do with it. Look at you. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't have, they, they haven't had the funding to have somebody in there full time for since they opened in 2011. That should be a priority though, right? It should be, but not really, right? But let me tell you why. When they opened in 2011, they had an operations manager. That's definitely a priority, because that means HR, that, that's payroll, yeah. bills. They had the director who also served in development. So that's money. So I got a fundraise because you can't open the doors without no money. Right. They had a facilities manager who did events too. Got to keep the building up to date. Got to run the event. And they had someone doing art and curation. But you have said, did you say a fundraiser? Mm-hmm. They did have a fundraiser. They had a fundraiser uh, who also was the um, so how many of the black businesses poured into HMAC? When I was there, so I'm speaking from 20, late 2015 to last month of 2017. So I can't speak before or after. <clears throat> Very little. Because we as a community have the downside of not having generational wealth or doing things on shoestring budgets. And that's everybody. Is that we need to shake each other's hands. So more often than anything, we have businesses coming in asking if they can use our space for free. Mm. Almost three, four times a week. Mm. With no value to us. Mm. But not considering... Not considering that... Something has to keep the lights on. Yeah, something has to keep the lights on. But not only that, if you want our building after hours, for four hours, somebody got to be there. Mm. And how are we supposed to pay them? Why can't you pay us? Okay, like hypothetically speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So brunch is what Friday, Saturday, no Saturday, Sunday. Saturday, Sunday. And then you do some after-hours Friday, like half the hour. Mm-hmm. So what if black businesses said, "Hey, we'll get three percent of whatever we profit to HMAC. That would make a world of a difference to me, you know? Three percent might depend on because we don't know how much they actually profit. You either, right? Because like I say, yeah, I was surprised they running on really tight budgets. And so they might just be paying their people and themselves and not have much left over. Because, you know, especially you learn that from Harvey in any restaurant situation, mm. that when a restaurant shut down for a week, it might never open again because they lost too much money in that one week. Right. So while we love brunch, it rarely makes people as rich as I think we think it makes them. Oh, see, I figured because they were saving so much. But, you know, brunch spots be like this. Tight. You know, well, that's once again, we ain't got the space for 8000 square like, feet. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So I would say that, and I proposed this after e-drink art, the only way for HMAC to thrive is to turn it to a place where the experience is where people come for and they get value in the art. And so that would be opening up a coffee shop because Lord knows the museum district needs a better one. Even though I love retrospect, those my people over there. Or maybe like a smart uh, gallery. Okay, what's that? What are you like? Um, like how Hustle had the smart clothing store. Oh yeah, like that. So like where you could see, you could purchase like small part uh, prints or something like that. But then there would be 
um, like a social media or like when you hold your phone over it there would be some digital display a digital of it, or a video of it like a smart like a smartphone you could use to show the content or the history of it to tell the story of it or something like that so it was a museum that did that they were a small museum and they didn't have the money to buy artifacts so they 3d printed things that you could scan and hear someone tell the story of the artifact oh, that's pretty cool like and i thought that was dope yeah and they gave those they had smart gallery yeah it's like a smart gallery they had an educational toolbox that you that they would give the schools to and it was uh, native american history and so they would have all these things that they 3d printed and you would scan it and hear the story of it and that would be how they got outreach to school. And I thought that is so genius. Like like you said, being doing using technology mm-hmm. to fill the gaps that you had. Right, right, right. But I said, you know, bookstore, which they did open a couple months ago, the store expanded. Because that's where a lot of our money came from. Was we started like selling Yeah, we started selling local artist stuff and we started getting money. Because I bought a dope t shirt from you bought a what? I didn't hear you. I, I, I bought a really cool t-shirt from um, H-Mag. Speaking of which, I'm looking for the black AF shirt. Have y'all seen that? No, no. Oh, man. It's so dope. <laughs> I want that shirt so bad. So, the store was one of the marketing initiatives that they actually saw through. So, I'm very proud of that part and the role I had in that. I just want them to open this coffee shop up because they'd be surprised how many people just go in there for coffee. And then find out that there's so much more in there and they're actually yeah and that's the thing you got to kind of bait and hook you know hook and bait them or bait and hook them because it's like if we know it's been there for six years and you're barely increasing the number of visitors that are coming in you got to drastically shift what you do yeah you gotta change your outlook you gotta change you can't keep saying well at this event at the debate every year we got 200 people okay well you should be aiming for 500 how do you think and now that we have an educated here, how do you think <laughs> that I'm off of Saturday? You are not off yet. <laughs> she said it's Saturday. But I'm just saying, like, and do you think that students, high school students, will be receptive to having, like, exhibits come to their school? I think it'd be, they'll be receptive. It just depends on the cost. It's always a cost. It's also, a cost. districts are hard to break into. When, like you say, you start thinking about cost and what the district has to do on their part for this to and they, go there. They're very concerned about content, <laughs> what you bring in. Yeah, what you bring in. Uh, just how much do students have to pay, teachers have to pay, or the school has to pay. Mm-hmm. Now, they'll field trip. But not in high school, right? Like, I don't care. Sure, we do field trips all the time. <laughs> we field trip all the time. But that's for, like, the specific educators. To decide, oh, okay. okay, this is what we're going to oh, do. Okay. Right. This is where I'm going to take my class. So if you had like the history teachers would go make right. their business to go to the African American Cultural Museum. Yeah. So that's like a curriculum designer, right? Education nope. designer? Huh? Woo! We yeah. do. Y'all didn't hit a pain point for me because that was the thing. Once we got some, HMAC got funding from the city once because the, the leader in that space was brilliant and found a loophole. Because remember, that was the thing, like Houston wasn't giving fun in the black museums. And so Houston gave them quite a lot of money. And so we were able to become another museum with somewhat full staff. 
And so then when we started making money off the store, I said, let's reinvest that back into having an educational curriculum person or some person come and build out a curriculum. It doesn't even have to be a full-time person. Get an educator, pay them a contract, and they already teach art at whatever level, and make, you know, have them build a unit around it. Yeah. But the thing is, how does this make us money? Because we don't charge for field trips. Mm-hmm. But it's not about money, it was about grants. Right. When you say you have an education program, you, you just opened up yeah, hundreds of thousands yeah. of foundations to give money to education programs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you set yourself apart because you had an educational program. Yeah. Or if you have a traditional component. Yeah. Alone. And so much money can come in. And someone who's written grants for people who busted out of whatever they were doing and said, let's open the educational part. Most of the money that we were getting like this was for the educational, oh, you're teaching kids something. But you can use that for that and just for general costs. But then you can also use it as an advertising. You know, the fact that you have that educational component makes you better in social media. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once again, it, it boils down to capacity. This is not the fault of the museum of any kind, because this isn't the only museum going through this. There are plenty of small museums particularly black small museums that have this issue, it comes down to capacity. They are said a lot of them are running on shoestring budgets with small staffs. And then it comes down to in any industry, nonprofit, museums, for profit, people don't place the value on marketing that they should. They see it as an outlier. Like as long as our building is open, that's the important part. Well your building ha- the thing that supports your building being open is people knowing about it. So which is marketing. The moral of the story is educate, donate, and invest and market. Yeah, marketing needs to be the central center of all art institutions. They need to go through their programs, through their education, through everything they do needs needs to see how marketing fits into it. And I promise you, any museum, big, small, rich, big founded, or maybe huge founders of no donations will grow. Okay, so I'm going to close this thing out. We're going to continue to talk about it, of course. But I hope everybody is encouraged to kind of teach their children and teach themselves more about visual arts and how important it is to invest and explore in the African-American community. And hey, go to your local museum and see what you can see. Peace out.